0: (laughs) Um, hi everybody I'm Fran and I'm an alcoholic Um, I always wait for divine inspiration of some sort at this point Um, I should say that I'm probably the the um, abject contrast to John in that um, my life has been quiet and sad and anxious and full of worry and not one word has been expressed but i had every single thought that he had except it was unexpressed and probably everybody else was able to read that except me um i uh, my beginning was fairly inauspicious um I did not come from an alcoholic family. I didn't even know there were alcoholics in my family until a few trees were shaken later in my life. Um, I would like to say that I also had an advantaged childhood. Um, I have, the one thing you know about, I hesitate I just to use the word old timer, um, I like to think of words like mature and uh, (laughs) even old crone is better, you know, (laughs) now that I'm in that kind of transition. um, The women in the audience would probably know what I mean. Um, But I would uh, also like to say that it gives me an opportunity to be, to look at life in retrospect. And um, I I do know that um, I... Although um, I say that I had an advantaged childhood, um, I've come to know with uh, the opportunities I've had by being sober that I've also been able to look at some elements of my life that have probably led me to where I am today. And um, I do know now that um, I really did come from a dysfunctional family. I didn't think that I shared that with you either, but I do know that today. Um, the... Um, the other thing that I'd like to say is that I kind of popped out as a little scared rabbit and uh, born to little scared rabbits. And um, so I grew up in an environment of uh don't try anything with a whole hell of a lot of worry. Don't try anything new if you don't think you're going to succeed. Um, uh Don't talk about anything that you may feel Especially if it has any implications um on anybody else's life um, uh don't stand out um, don't reach, don't stretch, don't do any of those things, just for God's sake, stay safe and I think that this is really some this is the. this is you can well imagine under those conditions because that isn't what life is, as John has just said. John gives, um, um, life gives us pleasure, and it gives us pain, and it gives us joy, and it gives us despair, and it gives us all those, those um, um, contrasts, and so as a, a teenager particularly, I was faced with all those contra- contrasts, and all I knew was stay safe, and um, um, I never felt safe for one moment, um, I was Life was very anxious. Unexpressed anxiety was what I think that I felt most of my life. I did know one thing, though, um, and that was that if I wanted to get out of the environment that I was in, there was only only one way to do it. Um, I don't know if you can hear this in my accent, but I'm a an Nuthie. And to get out of Newfoundland takes a lot of, um, um, it takes an awful lot of effort to get on that boat. Especially when your family's been there for eight million years, and that's all you know, and all you know is that Halifax is a lifetime away. And uh, so that I, I, just, I thought, well, what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll find an avenue to use to get me out of here. And the avenue that I use is education. And um, so that the one thing that I was able to do in my quiet, anxious way was to achieve some level of, of, um, of career path. That would get me off the rock and out of the house, and uh, so which is which is really what I did. And um, so when I was um, in high school and at university, I decided that the one way that I could be braver was to self-medicate. And so guess what I found? I found the answer to all that. And what I found was that not only I could get, I was underage, and so not only could I get this medication, but I could get it anywhere at any time. And in Montreal, where I went to university, I could get it at any time of the day or night. And it was absolutely wonderful. And so that I drank my way to university. By the time I got out of university, I was able to then support my habits financially. And so I drank then from... Until I was about 35, um, nothing changed in my life from the inside. Nothing much changed from the outside, except that with this medication that I was using, um, this alcohol. And although I did try other methods of medicating, there was nothing that could touch alcohol. And I know now, because when I arrived here, everybody told me that uh, that um, I just I was just real lucky. I had the right kind of body for that kind of medication. And it really, really worked for me. And so I therefore, I did all the same, same things that everybody else does, is that I, um, um, as I went from dry, drinking a Mickey a day to a bottle a day, all I did was that I adapted to that. Because I'd gone to school and I learned how to adapt to things. And so that one of the things that I did as I bought bigger purses. And, uh, you know, um, I had, um, um you I learned living skills. That um, allowed me to carry on two lives as a drunk, and uh, um, I don't think that I drank any less, probably in the beginning of my drinking than I did in the middle of my drinking. I just always drank a lot, always, and uh, consistently. I've never been—I don't understand binge drinking. Um, I've—I've—I've I've, never—I've never ever done that. And the only period of sobriety that I ever had from about the age of 16 onwards was uh, between 8 in the morning when I went to work and 4 in the afternoon when I came home. Um, and I've usually drunk enough during that period of time just to, you know, the old tricks of you can use to keep your alcohol working for you during the day when you're about to go into withdrawal. Um, so I spent a lot of time sort of managing all this so that I never, ever quite got sober. And I managed to drink for a long time this way and work for a long time this way I uh, displayed uh, certainly all the behaviors that anybody has during that period of time and any time I stopped drinking guess what happened all the anxiety came back all the fear took over my life and I became paralytic again and so as a result when I when I um, uh, got to the stage in my drinking where the alcohol wasn't working for me or else my behavior. I was turning, I went from from um, um, a a shy, retiring, withdrawn, bookie kind of a person to somebody that acted like John every time I drank. And so I turned into John. And all the, the, my alcohol toxic state turned, took everything that I was completely away from me. Not to mention my activities, but it took my whole personality. Anything that I had brought, I couldn't go to courses anymore. I couldn't use my head anymore. I couldn't do any of those things anymore. And it just took away my life completely. When um, I got to the point where I really was unemployable, um, which was a problem for me because I had not developed life skills around um, uh, getting booze, without my employment i didn't quite know how to do that because i sort of managed to work all the way along Uh, then i started to get a little bit distressed and began to have panic attacks and all the kind of things that go along with 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 almost going into withdrawal you know sometimes i think to this day I i get up in the morning sometimes and i say oh my god i am so tired and then suddenly i remember that i should never ever ever forget really what fatigue is fatigue is trying to maintain a level of competence so that you don't go overboard into incompetence or go into withdrawal. now that takes effort I think people that have never ever done that kind of a thing don't even know what stress and fatigue and effort and what not really are I don't think anybody's got any idea I know to this in this day i don't i have no idea the when i um became so toxic that i then had uh, you know i had had the same sort of problems from the point of view of behavior i was um, i was fighting in parking lots and look at me you know i'm a big threat in a in a in a parking lot but when somebody wants to take my car keys i i can turn into an animal and um, uh, I had to drive. I couldn't walk, so I had to drive for goodness mistake. I mean, didn't anybody understand that? Um, so um, I, therefore, was having all sorts of uh, additional problems. The point that I'm sort of able to see now in retrospect is not only did Booth um, take away everything that I had ever dreamt of of wanting to be but it also replaced it with something else that i never ever wanted to be and i i think that now when i find myself uh, you know talking to other people i, ha- I have this uh, uh, wonderful understanding of of that which i didn't have in the early years of my sobriety and uh, it's the kind of reason that I'm so, so very grateful to be sober, because it allows me an avenue to work towards achieving those dreams that I had when I was younger, of being a better person, living better, all those, all those um, um, good things that I ever wanted to do. Um, the way that I got um, through the doors of AA was um, not any more auspicious than anybody else's. Um, I became really quite ill um because of my physical dependence on alcohol and i uh, i uh, again became the last time I looked in the mirror after my last drunk I was about twenty five pounds lighter and and uh yellow and uh incompetent and I couldn't walk and i was- i was like we i'm I'm particularly sensitive to people that I see in the street that I know exactly what. How they feel physically as well as how they how they feel emotionally when I see sad thin emaciated um, um, uh, colleagues of ours out there on the street that haven't been fortunate enough to be here um, because that's how I was when I got there and i um it was particularly alarming for me because I'm in the healthcare field and um, it was um, quite a a devastating thing to do was to look in the mirror and see all this all the all these symptoms etc and um, i was i was i was a walking living example of all the things that uh, that i had learned about early in my career i ended up in the rubber room at campbell river hospital where i was on staff and um I therefore have the most incredible respect for the medical community, and um, and the uh, the staff in the workplace in which I worked. And this was in 1977, and so it wasn't exactly in the more um, tolerant age of Betty Ford and all the other institutions. <laughs> and uh, however I had the most incredible support from my colleagues with whom I worked who were padding around outside my door um, at work and um, so I've always found that it has been a distinct advantage to be more visible than invisible as far as my alcoholism has been has has um, been concerned so I don't have any difficulty with that part of the um, the AA tradition although I respect yours I don't have great difficulty with my own because I found it to be of more benefit than than a hazard to my own life Um, when I came into AA I was really very very fortunate and one of the things was that I had run out of I had run out of ideas and I sat there um, before I had a friend take me over to the hospital Uh, talking to my television set about being sick and tired about being of of being sick and tired and so therefore i had had no difficulty by the time i got to aa around quitting drinking the only problem that i had was i was scared to death to quit drinking i was panic-stricken about quitting drinking i really didn't want to have a rerun of all the anxiety and everything all over again and so therefore i started off with an incredible excitement about an adventure because I've always liked adventures and it felt like an adventure to me Um, I had no idea what it meant Uh, I had no I no concept of a different kind of a lifestyle but I did know that this is really what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be my other my other good fortune has been that I've never had a quarrel with a higher power but I found when I was coming over and I say that and I smile because when I was coming over here this morning i really usually when i do this kind of thing i ask i i ask to be an instrument you know i'll get up there and hold my mouth open and i will say whatever you want me to say dear lord i really will do that but just in case you forget (laughs) i think i better have a backup plan here so i thought of a couple of things and i thought that's the way i've lived my life with a backup plan you know (laughs) and probably two or three backup plans uh so um, I'd like to say that uh I would I'm a paragon of AA virtue and belief in my higher power that um, but I do know that I also have an incredible desire to be in charge. And uh that really is something that um, um, again um, I I think that I've come to know by thought by by being a part of the programme for this length of time is that I now allow myself to not be the best that there needs to be as far as the program is concerned um i'm i'm reaching i'm striving all the time i've i've been very very aware in the last year or so that being sober allows for incredible opportunity for all sorts of things not only in the job not only in the family not only the reconnection with uh, with With life itself, but it also has allowed me to develop things that uh, um, uh, traits that I had not been um, able to to develop when I was younger, such as courage to have a look at the things that that um, uh, are troublesome in my life, the courage and the tenacity to be able to look at some of the feelings that are have and always been unexpressed that have been a problem in my life um that i never would have been able to do had i not been able to stay sober long enough to develop um all those things that the promises tell us that that are able to do i too am another one that can stand up here and say that i've never felt happier in my life i've never felt more content in my life and i've never felt more proud of what i've been able to achieve in the last few years as far as as far as personal growth is concerned and i owe it all to sitting around at meetings i owe it all to all the people that i've called uh, at any time or the day in the night um, um, i still read the 24-hour day book every morning um, i have big gaps in in um, meeting attendance every so often but i still feel very plugged into the program um, I I work with a lot of people that are active drinkers, and I work with a lot of people that are also recovered alcoholics. And um, I'm—I think that probably if I felt anything quite strongly, I think one of the things—I don't know whether it's a—I don't know whether it's a woman thing. I don't know whether whatever it is, but I know that one of the things that I feel fairly strongly about is that early in the program we spent a lot of time. And Rebecca and I were just talking about the early or old days a little bit earlier. That that I know we spent a lot of time worrying that we weren't doing the program right. That we weren't doing enough. We weren't going to enough meetings. We weren't going to enough. Um, um, we weren't reading enough. We weren't. You know, we just weren't doing enough. And I think that that one of the things that that I know today is that obviously that we're, some of us are here some of us aren't but there's some of us of 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 my vintage are here and here in this room actually and um, and so therefore we're an example if we did do enough and maybe we don't need to worry as as um, newcomers about the enough what we need to do is to do what this says is to celebrate what we have the easy my my oh my sponsor used to say to me when I would whinge about not understanding or not getting it or not wanting to or stamp on my feet about the program or, ah, we're all just a bunch of Moonies, I used to say to her, you know, you nah, know, nah, nah, nah. and she would sort of always sort of say to me, celebrate every moment that you're sober, friend. Remember, that's the reason that you're here on this earth. And I, I I've never really forgotten that. And so I, and also, lead you with this message of whatever level your sobriety may be at today and whatnot, please celebrate that, because that is the gift that we've been given. And um, I truly want to um, uh, congratulate you all for being sober today, those of you that are that are here today, and uh, hope that you have another 24. Thank you.
1: My name is Marguerite, and I'm an alcoholic. And a very happy, joyous, and free alcoholic today. Now, 33 years ago, a little Filipino about three foot nothing came in and told me that if I removed the booze and the drugs from my life and went to Alcoholics Anonymous, everything else would take care of itself. You know, and he told me the truth, but I didn't believe him. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and only stayed for nine months. For ten months. And I figured I didn't have to do all the things that you guys were doing. You know, I had gotten happy, joyous, and free, so I went on my merry way. You know, things were coming together. I had gotten back with my first husband. I had my son with me, and we moved off to Chilliwack. And I became super mom, super wife, super employee, everything I could be. And I didn't have time for Alcoholics Anonymous. And as a result, three weeks later, I got drunk again. And I ended up in the same kind of hospital that I had been told, where I met this little three-foot-nothing Filipino doctor, and another one told me the same kind of thing. In Chilliwack, I had been sent off to Essendale. These were the kind of hospitals I was landing in, because I had lost the ability to be happy, joyous, and free. I ended up with shock treatments, everything under the sun, because then they didn't have very much about, they didn't know very much about alcoholism. And they were still experimenting with everything under the sun. And I ended up back in Saskatchewan after getting out of that hospital. And it took me almost a year to get back to this program again. And I started to learn all over again how to be happy, joyous, and free. And again, 10 months, 11 months later, I moved away. And I went to, I was still going to meetings, still doing some of the things. But I didn't like some of the things you said. So I wouldn't go to your meeting because you were there and you spoke things that I didn't like. You know, and I went to another one and somebody said something there that i didn't like so i couldn't go to that meeting anymore you know i ran out of meetings those people stayed sober and once again i lost the ability to be happy joyous and free and i ended up back in another hospital and uh, where i was hiding down in the tunnels trying to meet the people that were supplying me with my drugs and my booze And they realized that I was really in trouble, and they sent me down to the state, to a long-term treatment center. And that was finally um, my chance there. I had stayed there long enough, and I finally started to realize that if I wanted to keep what I had learned in this program, I was going to have to stay with it. And I was going to have to do the things that they were talking about, you know, and I started back at it again. You know, and by this time I had lost all of my family. I had um, not much left to go on, but I did have people in the program that were still willing to take the chance with me. And a lady took me home and (laughs) she... started looking after me again and trying to get me back on this program and I was a, a total case. for brains I had nothing left if I, if the phone answer rang I couldn't remember what I was doing if I had to stop and answer it and she would go through the same routine Marguerite you were doing this the dishes go here the plates go here, the cutlery goes here she would go through her routine and she stuck by me you know, and these people taught me again how to be happy, joyous, and free. But this time I decided I wasn't gonna let go. And she told me things like I had to continue, maybe for the rest of my life, if I wanted what these people had. And I finally decided that I wanted what they had, and I wanted it for the rest of my life. And things started to get better again. You know, I ended up staying sober long enough to get my brains out of hock. I started going to school again. I uh eventually remarried, started a beautiful family, you know, and things were coming together. And we were in a smaller town with a a new uh small group there. And I had to stay active, and I had to stay with the group. Because if I wasn't there, I wasn't going to hear the things that I needed to hear to keep me in line, to keep me on the straight and narrow, doing the things that were going to get me happy, joyous, and free. You know, and right from the beginning, people taught me things like um, how to have fun sober. You know, like getting to rallies and enjoying, uh, you know, the good times of sobriety, too. And it's been some fantastic trip. You know, I I mentioned I had lost all of my family. I had a son. I had a daughter. And uh, from the previous marriage, my first husband never did make it to Alcoholics Anonymous. He died in the bottom of a pileup on the freeway in Calgary, drunk, drinking and driving. And he never did make it to this program. But over the years, being able to stay sober, I have been able to rekindle a relationship with my son. And the daughter that I I had given up for adoption 26 years ago, last July we finally made contact. The daughter from this marriage and I was saw happened to watch, we'll be watching TV one day and a, new, a program came on about the laws changing in Canada and now to be able to find your children that you've lost over the years. And my daughter and I decided to try it. And we applied to this social services in Saskatchewan. You know, and uh, two weeks later we get a phone call. Social worker and founder her. She wasn't supposed to because she did. We were supposed to both have applied you know and uh, it turns out that she hadn't applied. She had just applied for some medical information and the social worker made a mistake. She saw the two names and she made contact. and that July my daughter was flew out here and she stayed. And just a couple of weeks ago, the son that I had from a previous, from that marriage, he lives in Vancouver and he's been in a lot of ups and downs and a lot of problems, a lot of trouble. You know, and uh, I was talking to him two weeks ago and he says, Mom, I'm in the program. Three weeks. You know, and, uh, the daughter that Mel and I have, you know, life comes together. We have two beautiful grandchildren and she's doing you know super well in the in the area we have all our kids in bc you know and we're all talking you know and that's something that would have never happened had i carried on the way i was eh? i would have i would have been dead a long time ago you know so today i still have to do Same things that brought me that happiness, the joy, and the freedom that I learned, you know, right from the beginning, 33 years ago, the first time I went. I still have to keep in touch with my sponsor, who is moving closer and closer to me. She's now made it as far as Calgary. You know, maybe we'll get her on the island yet. You know, and uh, I still have to get to my meetings, I still have to stay active. Because if I don't, it's just like my my schooling. I forget what I've learned. I don't know about you, but I don't remember a damn thing that I learned in things like you um, know in science in school. You know, how much of that I, I never use it hardly, so I don't remember it. But my math that I use on a regular basis, I remember it. You know, the spelling, I remember, because I'm using it on a regular basis. And that's what I still have to do in this program. use it on a regular basis in my daily life, at work, at play, wherever I am. If I want to keep on being happy, joyous, and free. And it's the only way that I'm going to keep on that way. Because i tried the other way. I went out twice as a result of it, and just about didn't make it back. And I don't want that to ever happen again. And I know the only way I can do that is to keep uh, stay here, and I'm still learning from the people in this program you know a twenty six year old daughter that I never knew before you know what do I know about twenty six year old kids in the nineteen you know in nineteen ninety six these young people in this program are teaching me how they think how they behave you know the way they've um things that i can you know um, so that we can sit down and we can talk and we don't have to be fighting. We don't have to do any of that. Eh? We can get to know each other in a loving, kind manner. And it's um, it's pretty neat. You know, she's gone, uh, gotten her own apartment. She loves it out here. As far as she's concerned, she's never going back to Toronto. She don't like it out there anymore. And, you know, we're still getting to know each other. And she's getting to know her sister and her brother and... You know, all of us, we're able to become a family again, you know, and the only way that can happen, for me, I know for sure, is by staying close to this program. My sponsor told me a long, long time ago to stay close, and I moved in with her. (laughs) And I stayed sober, you know, and she kept close to me, and I hope To god i can always stay close to the people that are around me in a daily living and that i can pass on the same kind of help and information that she gave to me so freely and is still giving to me so freely you know i've i've had a a friendship and a relationship with her that's grown over the years she's been a total part of our life even us getting married she got involved in that and she would uh, You know, it come out on a regular basis in the summertime all the years we've been living in Grand Forks. You know, and still there, still steadfast, still sober, still trying to pass on anything that she's learned and being a friend. You know, and friends like that I have all over this country. You know, I was looking in my telephone book not too long ago. And my little book, and uh, I have thirty thirty six pages. Since so there wasn't a, a single phone number in that book that was from the same city, you know, it's just been from right from Toronto to down in the states, to all over the place. And I know that I have friends everywhere, as long you know, if I want to pick up that phone. And it still has to be, um, you know, my reaching out. You know, and that has to continue for the, hopefully, for the rest of my life, because I love what I have in this program. And the only way I can keep it is by staying here. Thank you.
2: My name is Angie, and I'm an alcoholic. This is fabulous. What a great way to start a day. uh, Together, sober. uh, with people you love. The only time that I ever was with anybody, early in the morning, a group of people that I didn't uh, know, all of you, was uh, at the end of a party. And I didn't always feel like this, because I was... uh, Usually feeling the remorse was starting and the guilt was starting that I should have been home. So, uh, wonderful to, to start the day a little different today. Uh, what can I say about 50 years? Gee, not an awful lot. I do want to say that uh, I don't want anybody to think that the message of AA was not passed on to me in all its entirety, because it was. I came into AA in 1953, and I was lucky enough to be in the group with Charlie Brown and Gordy Jens and Fred Higginbottom, Colin Campbell, Odney Graham, all these people are all dead, and they did their very, very best to give me the message that was passed to them, and I thought I had got it. That's the difference, you know. I fell asleep very early, and... Uh, And it wasn't because I didn't want AA. I wanted AA, and I loved sobriety. And I thought that I had accepted God in my life. But I fell asleep, and I forgot one of the most important things that they told me was that I had to pass it on. I had to give it away on a continuing basis, and uh, that I had to be at meetings in order to pass it on. And that it wasn't enough not to want to drink that I would drink unless I worked the program as it was laid out. And uh I fell asleep there. And uh, I thought that it was up to me to look after the material part of what God wasn't supplying me. Like get a man, get him to marry me, hopefully he has enough money, and uh all those silly little things, you know. I didn't even, I couldn't even say I fell in love with lust, or I fell in lust, (laughs) like some of us do, you know. I just fell asleep, and I was so centered on Angie. I was so self-centered that I just couldn't, couldn't wake up. And when I was 12 years uh, sober, I drank again. And I drank for eight years, and I came back, and... All those people, most of them, were still alive and still going to meetings and still giving away what they had received. And so, it, you know, it, a slip doesn't work for everybody, and it's, I, I certainly wouldn't want to give anybody the idea that it is necessary to have a slip, because it, it's not, and we have proof on the stage of that today. But if you can learn a lesson from it, then it's not a total loss. And I learned a a very important lesson for me, that I am not important, but that AA is. And that I'm not to take myself seriously, but I am to take the program of AA seriously. And that I have a responsibility on a daily basis to give it away. No matter, oof, I hope I don't get emotional. Um, I just got in from <clears throat> from the work yeah, about midnight to work on the ship. So I'm a little tired but um, I have a responsibility to pass the message on outside of AA, not just in AA, like on the ship. And it really helps me to stay awake, to be aware that I'm the only person maybe, amongst the passengers and the crew that is NAA, that has heard the message. And the message is love unconditionally. Not love if you do this, not love if you do that, but just love. And that life is is here and it's now, and there's no rehearsals. Absolutely no rehearsals. We live the moment as it is. And we either have regret because we didn't stay awake to receive or to give, or we have gratitude. But thank God I didn't miss that. Thank God. And uh, I, I'm so grateful that I got a second chance. The thing about going out and drinking, if you've never done it, is that you find out that now that it's a real possibility. And so that helps you stay awake. Until you've never drank, it's come into AA and you think that you want to stay, you can't. But there's so many things that you have to do. And if, like me, you haven't done them, and you think you won't drink, well, scratch that idea, because you will. And... So once you've had had a, a slip, then you know it's a distinct possibility it could happen again. And so that's what really keeps me on my toes. Really want to know if you think I'm in trouble. Because God, I don't want to go out that door again. I want to be here until you throw that dust in my face and say, Well, she made it you know. Uh, to me Joy is the most infallible sign of the presence of God. And I really feel joy when I'm around AA, when I'm around alcoholics, you know. Sure, we have some low points in that, but they, they pass, you know. And if we get through it together, then we're all stronger together. And uh, I've been so lucky to have had really solid, strong people. In my life. And some of them have only been in AA for a short time. Months. But already God is giving to them and they are, they're giving it away. So anyhow, I, uh, I'm looking forward to this rally, to hearing a lot of good things. Um, I'm grateful that the shift has changed, and uh so I'm home for weekends now, and that's that's a plus for me for many years i I missed out on some of these rallies and that so it's almost quarter to eleven, and we're this meeting is to be closed at quarter to eleven right. Do you want me to feel in the last five minutes? Yeah. <laughs> well, what can I say? My tongue is starting to stick to the roof of my mouth because I haven't had a drink, and I always need a drink. It's empty, Doug. I had two of them, one for each hand. Uh, about two weeks ago... Um, I woke up about 4.30 in the morning. In this last year, some of the things that, like, if you stay long enough, your life changes. And as uh, as Doug was saying, your opinions change and everything. But also, stuff that is in you, that only you are the artist of, starts to come through. Like, I think that every one of us are gifted in In some particular way, you know, whether it's singing or uh, looking after old people or painting or writing, or no matter what it is, we are all gifted, and uh, it's, I know I can only speak for myself, thanks Jude. but i uh I think that we block our gift, and I wonder what happens. To the the gift that the Creator gave us, and only us, each one of us, gave a special gift. And I wonder what happens to that gift if we block it. What happens? Like, it does it just go off and it never, ever gets to be done? It never gets to be painted or written, you know? And I'm just starting to wake up to that. And so about two or three weeks ago, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning. And something was going through my head and, and I bought a scribbler a long time ago, 20 years ago, uh, almost when I came back, I was told to, to keep a daily journal about how I was feeling and what I was doing because they said it's an excellent way of telling where you are. If you write every day how you feel and where you're at and what you've been doing working-wise on the program, then when you get to a point where you're down, you can look back in the book to to the part where you were good and then see what you were doing in the program. And usually, if you're down, you've quit working on it, whatever you were doing. So anyhow, I got the scribbler beside my bed, and uh, what woke me up was a thing going through my head, and it said... Waiting for them, life calls through the pain. And at 4.30 in the morning, that really didn't mean an awful lot, and I tried to go back to sleep because I have to get up at 6. But I have thought of that line so often in the last three weeks and how profound it was, and that that was a gift from God at 4.30 in the morning. Maybe I can write a poem of it some days. Who knows? Maybe somebody else can write a poem of it, you know. But certainly, waiting for the celebration, life calls through the pain. And that's that's what was waiting, you know. We thought we were celebrating when we were drinking and living it up. But we really weren't. And we went into a lot of deep pain. Our families went into deep pain. Bosses went into deep pain. Some of the bosses loved us as human beings, recognized our talents and everything. And it was very painful. And everybody was waiting, waiting for the celebration. Life called through the pain. And here we are. We're, we're living. And this is life. You know? Sometimes people talk about the other world, the normal world. I don't think so. I think this is the normal world. The world out there that they call the normal world is all screwed up. You know, it's not spiritual, most of it, you know, it's um the politics and all that sort of stuff, you know. But this this is the normal world. This is how we're supposed to live. To love each other and to love yourself. And so I'm grateful that uh that life calls through the pain for me. Thanks.
3: i'm yvonne and sue isn't my last name it's my nickname we're both alcoholics (laughs) i've never had a dwi mainly on account of where i used to live everything was boats and the policemen weren't around when i was drunk and running boats and i've never been hospitalized and i've never been in a drunk tank but i do qualify i am an alcoholic and uh, where i used to live our home was right on the water and uh, I guess I started drinking quite early. Uh, the first dr- time a uh, drink I can remember having was my dad used to make homebrew and moonshine. And uh, we had, we kids had uh, root beer. And when we run out of root beer, well, he'd sometimes put a little bit of homebrew in a glass and fill it with water and then put sugar in it. And that was our pop. And we thought that was great to be having a, a little drink with our dad after he'd come in from work, you know, and as far as I remember, to the best of my knowledge, it's the only time in my life I ever had one drink. <laughs> I, I've had a good many people ask me since I came into AA, well, don't you think you could take one drink and uh, leave it alone? I said, no way. I never wanted one drink in my life. I always wanted more than one. One wasn't going to do a damn thing for me unless it was a damn big one. <laughs> and actually, I never liked my dad much, and he... Uh, I had a hot temper, and he'd shout at us, and I was a very shy little girl, and the rest of the family didn't inherit my shyness. Little did I know when I grew up I was going to inherit his bad temper, and I was going to shout and yell at my kids too. But anyhow, in my when I hit my teen years, the only thing I liked about my dad was he made good moonshine. He made about the best moonshine on the coast in our area anyhow, and everybody remarked on it, and of course when he wasn't looking, we were all of us kids got into this darn moonshine out of six kids there was three boys and three girls in our family and i think five of us were alcoholics and the other one's neurotic and <laughs> 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 um, i think the yeah, the one that's neurotic could do with a uh, a 12-step program so I, I i consider i'm quite lucky to be in here one of them one of us is still out there practicing the brother next to me drowned drunk and uh, My youngest brother was killed in a logging accident, but I'm quite sure he had a drinking problem, too. And My oldest brother died of cancer of the liver. Probably alcohol brought it on, but he did die sober in AA. He didn't quite make his year, but he was in AA and never drank again. Even when he knew he was terminal, he managed to leave the booze alone. And just us three girls are left now to carry on, and I'm the one that's in AA. (laughs) I um, I didn't think that alcohol I had a problem with it. I uh, well, it wasn't the, the loggers. A lot of them drink, and a lot of them drink to excess. I never realized how many of them didn't drink to to excess until I quit drinking, and joined AA. But anyhow, um, you know, when you get drunk and our way. You can't fight them. You might as well join them and uh, of course my husband he'd use me as an excuse for drinking well i'd drive anybody to drink and i say, well you can't fight him you might as well join him and so we both had a built-in excuse for our drinking and uh, when i i came to alan first and i happened to read an article in the toronto star weekly on compulsive drinking and at the time my husband and his father and our crew had all gone to pick up the mail and freight on the boat, and they all bought bootleg booze and, and came home drunk. And we could ill afford bootleg booze. And I thought, well, after reading this article, that's compulsive drinking. One buys a bottle, the other said buy a bottle, you know. And so, that, so goes the story. Little did I realize my husband staggered him. He still had part of his bottle left, and he offered me a drink. And I thought, well, you might as well. So I had a drink, and he passed out, and then I had nobody to drink with.
2: Well, that made me mad
3: <laughs> anyhow it didn't stop me from drinking the drink but i preferred to drink in company at the time but anyhow i wrote into this box number in uh, toronto and uh, they sent me some pamphlets on alan and one of the first things i read was you nag because they drink and they drink because you nag and i thought god that makes sense well i'll just quit nagging and then he won't drink too much So I was quite sure I'd found the Curo. It's kind of crazy, you know. I was actually blaming myself for his drinking and uh, somebody told me in Alan they said, well, naturally you did because you were told it often enough. You're bound to believe it eventually. And anyhow, when I went to Vancouver, I started going to Al-Anon meetings. And the first one I remember I went to, I was all ginned up, and I couldn't open my mouth. I was scared they'd smell the gin on me. They probably could anyhow, but I was sure if I kept my mouth shut, they wouldn't smell it. <laughs> And anyhow, I, I, as I went on in al on and followed their ideas, I began to realize what an alcoholic was. I always thought they were skid-road bums, you know, that smoked cigarette butts that were left on the street and drank Bay rum. And I suddenly realized, my God, I must be one myself, then. Well, if I'm one, he must be one. Oh, my God. I thought this was the end of the world. What are you going to do for fun? You know, you'd give up the booze. How are you gotta be some way of having fun and i thought well i don't know I i tried to be the nice little wife you know and in alan on and there is no way somebody said that that's no lady that's jack's wife <laughs> so the shoe fits you might as well wear it but it took me a whole year to finally come to a.a and the day i decided i was going to phone a.a I thought, well, I'll wait till he passes out. We're in Vancouver and I'll phone Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, he wouldn't pass out. Every once in a while, these things happen, you know. (laughs) And uh, finally he did, and I phoned AA. And uh, that was when they had this, Lucy was in the, uh, running the AA office in Vancouver. And that, she was the only person in there. And she had the most beautiful telephone voice. And I thought, you don't they'd have an alcoholic on the other end. (laughs) (laughs) i figured nobody that was an alcoholic sober could sound that good on a phone well anyhow we had quite a conversation and she insisted she was an alcoholic and finally i the next day i went down to the office and i saw her and decided this is it. i'm going to go to a.a well my first meeting was in the old kingsley hall in vancouver there and uh, i had to have three beers before i could walk over there and i got there the meeting was in session I found a seat and sat down and my god I'd left my cigarettes home and to sit through a meeting without a cigarette. Just happened I sat beside a woman from Beebe Cove who knew the area I'd lived in and she smoked my brand of cigarettes and shared them with me. Uh, I only remembered two things about that meeting. And one is the fella had been to Toronto, to the International in Toronto, and I'd met his wife in paul River when I went to an Al an Anon meeting. And he described that international, and he said, you know, everybody has their name tags on, and you're walking down the street and you're talking to people from all over the world. And he said he stayed a few days after the convention was over, and he said the city wasn't the same. I've since been to three internationals, and I know what he means. There's just something about it. If they, You can ever afford it. Go to an international. There's just something about it. The, the feeling is great. And anyhow, the other fellow that I, (laughs) I remembered what he had to say, fellow from California, they were on their way back from the international, and they decided to come through Vancouver. And uh, he got up, and he he was describing alcoholism. He said, it's like wiping your ass with a wagon wheel. There ain't no end to it. (laughs) 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 Well, I I thought, you know, that's a pretty good description. (laughs) I'd been on a drunk for three weeks and was trying to get off of it, and I just couldn't seem to make it. Anyhow, those are the things I remembered about that meeting, and uh, I thought, well, now I'll go home, and there was no AA where I lived up there in the bush. There was none at all. matter of fact, on the North Island, I think at the time, there was one member in Port Hardy, and there was no groups up there at all. Now you can go to a group any place at all on the north end. And anyhow, I went home with, manned with a bunch of tapes. This girl took me under wing and made me up a bunch of AA tapes. And it took me nine months to get into AA. And you know, I was sober four months and well, two weeks. And then I got drunk once a month for sure. And then finally, my last drunk, I went to this dance. We used to have a dance up there in our rec home, the end of every month. And we had a bar there. And somebody said, oh, it was my youngest son's 19th birthday. You've got to have a drink to help celebrate, a thing I'm not very proud of. That was my last drunk. I was helping my son celebrate his 19th birthday. And uh, anyhow, I that was the last time I drank. I was pretty good at the party, but the next day, oh, man, did I get sloshed? And uh, one nice thing about that drunk Sunday was I remember everything I did. I didn't have a blackout, and I was an absolute ass. And uh, I, I can still remember everything I did and the things I said and everything else. And I did cook supper, but it got on the table about two hours late. And God knows what it was like. I don't know whether I ate it myself or not. But that was the end of it. The next day I woke up and I, oh, God, I had a hangover. I'm not going to drink today. I don't give a damn. if the Queen of England or even if Prince Philip comes in. I won't raise a toast to him. I'm not drinking. That's it. And the thing was, I'd been trying to quit for life instead of just for one day, and they all came in early from work. they were doing contract logging. and they said, "Let's go up and take them to Jeff Muliken." Well, of course, I like fishing, and away I went, never realizing they were in because they were they were just wanting to drink some more. So I ate all their lunch and drank all their coffee, and they drank beer, and my tongue was hanging out a foot, but I made it through the day without taking a drink. And when we came home, with not many Ulicans, but we did have a feed of them, I was able to cook supper. My husband and his friend, they drank theirs, their bottle of rye produced from I don't know where. And I sat down and drank that, and I was able to cook supper, and the next day I got up feeling wonderful. No hangover, and I thought, God, I made her yesterday under the damnedest odds, I can make her another day. And it's been like that ever since, and I've never looked back nor regretted it. There's been a lot of funny things that have happened in my life. My husband kept on drinking, and the bar was set up all the time on my kitchen counter. One time on alert day, and we had our boat on the ways, and we're staying in the hotel, the old mint fish, and everybody got in our room, a whole bunch of people, and they were all drinking, and I was just about ready to break down and have a beer with them. I thought, Jesus, I can't stand this. And something told me there was a member in Port Hardy, so I went over to the telephone, my phone this member in Port Hardy, and talked to him for about 15 minutes, and I came back in, and I thought, they, they're going to have a hangover, not me. And it's just funny how talking to another member, but I uh, was doing it as a loner in A.A., and I wrote to people all over the world. A thing I've sort of dropped off a bit since I uh, moved to Comont But at one time I wrote to quite a number of people in Africa and it's way up in the North Pole and uh, it's really interesting. It's amazing what you share in a letter. I've ran into some people or written to some people who are just new in AA. One was a fellow in New Guinea and I'd sent him a Christmas card. Uh, It was one of these UNICEF cards that have all the Merry Christmas written in different (coughs) languages. And all that was on the front was a snow scene and a little kid pulling a, a christmas tree across the snow and he was just uh newly sober in AA when he got this christmas card from me and he said that buoyed him up christmas was coming and he got it just before christmas and he said when he got that card and of course i wrote a little note of told my life story on there in, in three words i think <laughs> and anyhow he uh, he wrote back and uh years later he w- wrote to me and he told me that quite often their mail was drowned when he got the, and this uh, letter he'd written to me had been undoubtedly wet but it was readable and he said i can still remember that christmas card you sent me that first year that i was sober in new guinea and he said it got me through christmas and since then he's back in the states now but he um, The first uh, one time when he was home on leave he phoned me from missouri i think it was long distance we had the greatest conversation over the telephone but there's things like this that are real pluses in a.a but one time my husband got drunk when i was still i was sober at a.a was getting towards the end of his last drinking and i was we'd been over and got our mail and freight and groceries and i'd put it all away and i was reading the old star weekly as usual and he was talking to me and talking to me, and I kept saying, he'll pass out pretty quick, he'll pass out pretty quick, you know. Finally he said, am I boring you? I said, oh no, not at all, I'm listening. And he says, I don't know how a sweet little old thing like you that can put up with a lemon like me. Now, I didn't get this from Al-Anon or AA. I said, oh, you just acquire a case for lemons. <laughs> well that's something you don't tell an alcoholic when they're in their cups. (laughs) anyhow he did finally pass out (laughs) but he he finally his last drunk lasted about six months we were going up to the yukon and alaska on a holiday and he started to drink and i had at the time thought i might take a drink with him But he got too drunk before we got on the trip, and I never did pick up that drink, thank God. And That was the beginning of August, and he never sobered up till the 2nd of January, and he had a stomach hemorrhage. And I must say, that was one night I was bad. I was sober. I um, was able to get him to the hospital before he bled to death. And Jack managed to enjoy nearly 27 years sobriety before he passed away. And the nice thing is, he sure made it up to his kids, because the time he had the stomach hemorrhage, none of them gave a damn about him. One said, he's more trouble than he's worth, and my daughter said, I'm not going to his damn funeral if he doesn't make it, you know. And, but when he died, I, it was a different story. And that's one of the benefits of AA, and I myself am very glad to still be sober and alcoholics anonymous, and nothing has driven me back to drink, And I think that's about the end of my story. (laughs) And thank you all for my sobriety.